Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Hibba Murray, who is our communications manager. Hey, Hibba. Hey, Stacy. So we have a special episode today. It's um, ILSR's 45th birthday, which is kind of amazing. We were born in 1974. And so today we've got a conversation uh, that Hibba and I had with one of ILSR's founders, David Morris. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation to kind of see, like, what's stayed the same and sort of what's changed and sort of the the threads of ILSR's work and some of the approaches and values that we're bringing to looking at policy issues, you know, how some of those things have changed and then also some of the, the ways in which context has changed. What did you find interesting about the conversation, Hibba, especially as someone who's kind of new to ILSR? I thought it was so interesting how David talked about how ILSR marries policy and practice and how we've been doing that pretty consistently for 45 years. Um, I think as a newer staff member, it's such a unique model um, in the policy space that it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around it, but we've been doing it for a long time, so that was cool to hear about. Yeah, I really loved that image of Neil in the early days riding around on on a garbage truck to actually understand how solid waste works. And so, you know, that sort of on the ground, like very direct hands-on kind of experience in terms of shaping like what would early recycling policy look like, like how such cities approach um, this issue of solid waste and, and also just kind of married with this vision of seeing it as a resource instead of actually waste. Yeah, we've had Neil on a couple of podcasts, and I'm sure folks that are listening to those have aren't surprised by his level of enthusiasm and the commitment to the waste-to-wealth work. Yeah, it's true. And, it, and you also just see that, I think, across the work, you know, whether it's the broadband work or really any of our other initiatives, um, you're very much both on the ground, but also working on the bigger picture analysis and the policy development at the same time. I also thought it was really interesting to hear some about the fact that Washington, D.C., where ILSR was founded, had really been stripped of any political power, um, and that ILSR was founded partly because the city was starting to get some of that political power back, and so there was a real opportunity to take charge And what could residents of the city actually do? How could they take hold of their their own future? Um, so I thought that was interesting to hear about as well. And just thinking about how much cities have changed over this period and this relationship between engaging and working on policy issues at the local level and then how that influences and the dynamic with state and, and national politics as well. So I hope everyone enjoys this episode. So without any further ado, here's uh, Hiba and I talking with David Morris. David, welcome back to Building Local Power. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be back. We're we're just about at ILSR's 45th birthday, and we thought this would be a great time to reflect a little bit on the organization's founding and where we've come since and how things have changed. Um, so let me start by asking you, what, what led to the founding of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance? The, the Institute was founded in Washington, D.C. in 1974, 45 years ago, uh, by several people, uh, Gil Friend, Neil Selvin, uh, and myself. And it was, a, it was a moment where our different paths kind of converged on uh, the need to focus on cities. Uh, and being in Washington, D.C., at that moment in history, for people who don't know, Washington, D.C. actually had an elected government 
during during the Civil War and just after the Civil War. But when the blacks came north, 25,000 blacks came north after the Civil War and they threatened to essentially be a majority and they were beginning to pass legislation related to segregation, uh, the whites took their, their uh, citizenship away, if you will, uh, and they ended up being ruled by three commissioners. And that occurred all the way up until the 1960s. Uh, in 1964, the people in the District of Columbia got the right to vote for president. In 68, they got the right to vote for the school board. Uh, and in 72, if memory serves me right, they got to vote for the mayor and the city council. So it was a, a city that was beginning to regain, uh, if you will, its autonomy and its authority. And that was the environment in which the Institute uh, was born uh, and of course it was thinking of becoming a city-state uh, in the sense that it was a city that was treated like a state from the federal government perspective. So that was one you know very important if you will a part of the environment into which we were born. Uh, a second part was my own experience in Chile uh, when Salvador Allende was elected democratically in 1970 he led a minority government that couldn't pass any legislation but was making a structural revolution for the common good in a profound way. And I grew up in New York City where we had a population of about 8 million people and Chile at that time had a population of about 8 million people uh, and it had fewer engineers graduating from its universities than the city colleges of, of New York uh, and of course had a a gross national product that was less than the city budget uh, of New York and was going about make, determining its own future as much as it could. And when I came back from my visit, my stay in Chile, uh, I found that New York City was declaring itself bankrupt and giving up its authority to three bankers, which it did for a number of years, and realized that there was a conceptual problem here, um, that, you know, essentially I had lived in this country that had far fewer resources uh, than, than, uh, than New York City to tap into, uh, but they felt that they could make, especially in the face of, of, of sort of global embargoes led by the United States and the like, a true structural revolution, democratic revolution, and New York City uh, was in despair. So, you know, that sort of combination of political events, if you will, spurred us to set up the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and to focus on cities. ILSR has always had this this idea about places, cities, towns, you know, communities being, you know, the possibility of them being self-conscious and self-directing and that that could be, you know, an interesting laboratory for innovative policy ideas and could also create more, um, sort of more engaged and more capable citizens, which I think is sort of, some of what you're saying in terms of this context around both D.C. and New York uh, and and the opportunity not to be kind of ruled from above, but really to actually develop democracy and solutions from the from the bottom up. How can you talk a little bit about how ILSR has evolved since, like going from a neighborhood organization in D.C. to being a national organization and then also having to, you know, think about the ways that some of the models in 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 D.C. could uh, work elsewhere, but also different levels of government and how that came into play uh, in terms of the organization's thinking. Sure. We we started as a neighborhood organization in, in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C., uh, and created a, 
the alternative economy is what we called it, the Washington Free Community, which uh, ended up being about a $5 million internal economy with uh, retail stores and, and uh, trucking, uh, trucking cooperatives and a, a warehouse and, you know, and the like. Uh, and then fairly soon we were uh, focusing on the city itself and then we were focusing on the region uh, up to New Jersey and we worked in Newark. Uh, we worked actually up in Philadelphia as well. Uh, and so we began to understand, you know, we began to apply our framework uh, wider. Uh, and, you know, as we evolved, we had sort of two, uh, if you will, approaches uh, from the Institute perspective. One was the framework itself. Uh, and the framework, which I'll get into in, in, in a second, we applied widely. We applied to all sectors of the economy. Uh, and then the Institute created initiatives, and the initiatives themselves were drilled deeper down uh, into a, a part of the economy, like, for example, broadband, although we didn't start broadband until maybe 30 years later, but we started solid waste uh, immediately. We started energy uh, immediately uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and so we had those two perspectives, and the framework was essentially a framework that said cities have a uh, internal market. Uh, they often have enough people that they have an expertise, they have an administrative capability. Uh, and in many states, they also have significant authority that they can, in fact, develop the rules. Admittedly, they are constrained by the state governments, uh, but they can develop rules that, uh, that channel scientific expertise uh, and, and human genius and investment capital in certain directions. Uh, and we, we, we posited a kind of framework of this as kind of the ABCs of self-reliance, uh, which is that we promoted an authority, especially at the local level, the authority to in fact make new, new rules uh, and the responsibility to make those rules in a way that, that honored uh, and cared for the weak and the disabled, the elderly and the poor, and the next generation, uh, and that they would develop a competency, that is a capability, if you will, a capacity uh, internal to the city, uh, not only a, an, an intellectual and a skill-based capacity, but actually a capacity to extract wealth uh, from, from inside the city. Uh, and that's a framework that we've applied throughout uh, our entire history. David, you've been with the Institute since the very beginning. Um, I'm wondering if you could share maybe some highlights or your favorite memory from being with ILSR over the past 45 years. Uh, I know at, at our recent staff retreat, I learned that when ILSR was still sort of like a D.C. neighborhood group, we had a bean sprout operation that we were running from the office. Uh, I enjoyed hearing that story. Um, but really, any of the big success stories that you'd like to share? Well, I think at the beginning it was little success stories, and then as we grew, it, it, it was big success stories. Uh, at the beginning, we were in a townhouse in Washington, D.C., a three-story townhouse, which was uh, pretty much the architecture, residential architecture in, in a lot of D.C. Uh, and uh, we we had a, it, the physical plant itself. We built a, a, a greenhouse on the roof, had hydroponic gardening for tomatoes. We had solar uh, collectors, not solar cells, uh, at that time to generate heat. Uh, in the basement, we had a we had a Clivus multrum composting toilet, and we also uh, we also grew sprouts. The entire 
and it was a small staff of the Institute would get together every day uh, and we would bag uh, our sprouts uh, and then uh, sell them uh, to the local restaurants and to and to local stores uh, and and we we essentially you know tried to do that in a way that would allow the Institute to in fact work in the marketplace uh, while at the same time uh, you know making us interact with the community you know at large but at the same time that we were doing that uh, we we issued uh, Bill Batko our staff person at that time uh, issued a report I think it probably was the first report on a municipal bank uh, and it was a nuts and bolts how a municipal bank might might be created uh, in the District of Columbia to serve mostly the low-income and the moderate-income community and workers within the District of Columbia. And so th those, those types of things, you know, sort of theory and practice, if you will, you know, policy uh, at the same time as hands-on, uh, really has characterized the Institute, you know, through, you know, 45 years. Some of the better examples in the early years were in solid waste, we chose solid waste as one of our initiatives because it's a sector of the economy over which cities have almost complete authority. Uh, and so you didn't have to convince a city to deal with its garbage. It knew it had to deal with its garbage. Uh, and we thought of, of garbage not as garbage but as materials and quite valuable materials which could be not only collected and sorted but also remanufactured for, for value added. Uh, and uh, Neil Selman rode the sanitation trucks with the sanitation workers at five o'clock in the morning to get a handle on what that meant uh, and was using a little homemade scale in uh, landfill in Newark in the middle of the summer uh, to weigh the different components of the garbage to get his handle on on uh, on what you know how much was paper and the like this was before the federal government and, and state and local governments uh, were doing that uh, but at the same time, he and we were working with activists around the country, and we were saying to them, you know, you can recycle at high levels, and it can be part of your local economy. And at the time, uh, because of the energy crisis, the larger environmental community, the organized environmental community, and, you know, many people in the governments were supportive of burning uh, garbage to generate uh, energy. Uh, and and uh, waste to energy systems and the problem with the waste to energy system is they're very large and if you build one of those you actually don't have any capacity any longer uh, to do recycling so Neil would go in city after city and say look this is what we want to do long term we want to recycle we want to create scrap based manufacturing we want to create a a sort of indigenous manufacturing and collection capacity but in the meantime we have to fight these incinerators because if they're built uh, we for close any other development path and so for the first 10 to 15 years of Institute's work we were primarily fighting incinerators and by the late 1980s I think 1987 was the time where more incinerators were canceled uh, than were proposed and by 1987 the Institute had also published uh, our reports, our case studies that indicated that you could actually recycle uh, half of your recycling stream, you know, at least at that time, which was revolutionary because most people thought you couldn't recycle more than 10%. Uh, 
so we're not talking about uh, something that's narrow. We don't talk about something that's parochial. We're not talking about uh, self-sufficiency. Uh, no nation is self-sufficient. Uh, you know, they don't. They, that would make sense. Uh, we're talking about an interdependence and a and a cooperative relationship among cities, uh, where they in fact trade. But it's a different type of trade that we have uh, now in the world. It's really interesting how much like an organization's. Uh DNA, if you will, kind of persists over the years. And, and you know, I think it's ILSR is sort of unusual uh, or you know, maybe even unique in the sense that, you know, today you can come to ILSR and, for example, uh, go to a workshop on how to start a no- neighborhood uh, composting uh, project in your in your community, and you take a hands-on workshop about how to do that, and 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 work with others in your community to do it, and then you can also get you know top-notch policy analysis, um, and you know those two ends of the of the work continue to operate in in tandem in a way that I think you just don't really see much at other organizations and seems to me and in some ways makes both ends stronger so the work that we do really on the ground in communities is informed by having a larger analysis and likewise the larger analysis is informed by what we're learning on the ground in communities and it feels like that's always been part of the story of ILSR. Yes, and I, I agree with you, Stacy, and, and you've been a, a part of that evolutionary process now for more than 20 years. And if you look at the, you know, the community scale economy uh, pr- uh, initiative that you set up, uh, you, you see those different pieces there as well, where you, you've helped to create uh, networks of independent businesses within cities. But at the same time as you were doing that, you were working on on national policies. You were working on trying to to persuade and enable these independent business associations to act politically in a way that could challenge the WalMarts and now the Amazons of the world, so that they would they would in fact uh, create a zoning. Uh, code uh, locally that would prevent a big box a retail store from coming in uh, and then later on you know more recently you know they would work at the state legislatures to stop Amazon from having a tax exemption for selling the same products as as they sell that they are taxed on the broadband initiative is the same thing you know where Chris is essentially working you know with cities working in technical assistance hands-on uh, working with entrepreneurs working with technical people and, and you know and, and experts uh, in cities around the country and more recently with rural cooperatives to enable uh, their work in setting up their own uh, their own fiber infrastructure treating uh, treating telecommunications networks as part of the essential public infrastructure uh, and uh, and at the same time has created uh, two national organizations uh, and their role is to essentially fight state preemption and federal preemption that in fact stop uh, cities from having or strip cities of the authority uh, to create these uh, publicly owned uh, networks and then as well as creating a daily news service to report on develops as well as creating reports, technical reports that can be used by people around the country when the private sector says uh, cities can't own their own networks, they're all going to go broke and we're terrific. Uh, and so you have empirical chapter and verse data uh, to uh, to refute that. So, you know, we work at, at a number of different levels, uh, but at the same time, I don't think of it as 
as being chaotic in its work. It, uh, it's sort of mutually reinforcing both internal to initiatives and increasingly within, uh, in between initiatives as well. That's great. I think one of the strengths of ILSR, like our special sauce that you're getting at, David, is really that we have um, this consistent model of marrying theory and practice. Um, but 45 years is is a lot of time for shifts to happen politically, economically, technologically. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the context for ILSR's work has changed uh, since the founding in 1974? Sure, I can. And thank you for the question. Uh, there's the, the, the context has changed uh, dramatically uh, when we set up uh, the especially white you know, middle class was fleeing uh, cities and factories were closing down, cities were becoming hollowed out, uh, and the federal government was rapidly expanding and providing money uh, to to cities you know and to regions uh, if If a city built a a public works project they could they could you know often get seventy five or ninety percent matching money. Uh, from the federal government uh, to do that, and most all attention was focused on a federal government that seemed to be an an enabler. Uh, the other thing that was that at that time was that the uh, Nixon administration had envisioned, in fact, publicly proclaimed that their goal was to have a thousand nuclear reactors operating by uh, 1990, and uh, and yet there was this sort of embryonic technology. Uh, where the first company to produce it had just set up a year before the Institute opened our doors, uh, a company called SolarX, uh, to create this this new technology to build a solar cell uh, that didn't have the economies of scale of a nuclear plant and can generate electricity uh, at your at your house or on your farm or or on top of your car, uh, as we've uh, as we've found out. Um, and so that was just an inkling, just a glimmering, you know, you know, if you will. And, and the other thing about cities in, in 1974 is that for most environmentalists, cities were, were a blot, if you will. Cities were something that consumed far more resources than their carrying capacity, than the land they occupied. And many people believed that one needed to go back to the land or needed to go to much smaller cities and, and villages if we were going to move towards sustainability. Now, if you move, you know, fast forward, uh, you move to a to a time where the you know the federal government is giving you know less and less money uh, to cities, uh, you're also talking about a time now where the federal government is hostile uh, to the exercise of authority at just about any level, uh, and in fact is is now thwarting and trying to overturn any initiatives for the common good. So that you know now, uh, unlike in 1974, most of the uh, you know, innovative, creative, you know, active uh, people in the country uh, are working at the local level or are working at the state level because that's the place that space is still available, uh, and they're working in opposition to the federal government to to delay uh, and disable, if you will, the, those initiatives. It's completely the opposite of what was occurring in 1974, and we're thankful that we've had, you know, 45 years or uh, of experience, and you know, that can be useful for that. And the other thing is that the decentralized dynamic of technology, which was just a glimmer uh, in 1974, you know, you had mainframe uh, computers in 1974. You didn't have laptop, let alone an internet. Uh, and uh, and now you're talking about, uh, you know, the internet, of course, being 
you know, something which has its, its positives and its negatives, but on the positive side, it can enable a communication and increasingly one translated into your own language uh, among peoples in the world and among peoples uh, within a community. And it allows transparency uh, for governance uh, and it allows people who, who, who produce products, uh, especially products that are, that are information products, uh, to sell directly and, and bypass uh, the, the middle people uh, in that uh, in that process and solar cells are now competitive. Uh, they they were competitive with nuclear plants six or seven years ago, but they're now competitive uh, with coal uh, and natural gas plants. Uh, and you now have several million homes uh, which produce enough electricity from their rooftops to provide all of their electricity year-round. Now, they don't produce it at the specific time that they need to do it, so you're beginning to talk about storage, and they sell, and they export electricity, they import electricity from the grid system, but nevertheless, you're now, it, it's now mainstream uh, to talk about, the, you know, the possibilities of decentralized uh, technologies like desktop manufacturing tech that weren't really even even thought of in 1974. But it's the dynamic of the decentralized technology that we promoted and we adopted you know, early on, and there were examples of it, but we thought that technology from the 19th century to the late 20th century was centralizing. When you shifted from wood to steel, when you shifted from you know, wind power to fossil fuels, when you shifted from batch manufacturing to mass manufacturing, inevitably you shifted from small to large. And now the technology is centrifugal. It is now potentially decentralizing. And I think that that's you know, extremely important in terms of the, the changed context in which we work. I want to come back to this issue of technology and, and policy and level, levels of government in which we act. But first, we're going to take a short break for an ad swap. If you're a fan of this show, then I think you'll really like this other podcast I've been listening to. It's called Capital Isn't. And it's about the ways that capitalism is and, and is often not uh, working in our society. They cover everything from whether Facebook is a monopoly to how to fix global inequality. It's a show that really explains what's gone wrong with capitalism and what we can do about it. It's hosted by two economists, uh, Luigi Zangales of the University of Chicago and Kate Waldock at Georgetown University. It's entertaining, smart, funny. I highly recommend it. So check it out. Capital Isn't, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So David, uh, before the break, you were talking about how technology um, in some ways today with the internet is enabling decentralization. There are also some, of course, some very troubling ways in which you know we now have a handful of companies that essentially control the internet and have become gatekeepers. Um, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Uh, in ways that uh, I think you could say, you know, not dissimilar to some of the technologies you, you named in the past where you had, you know, folks who took hold of the railroads and, and used them to, to push a particular uh, agenda that benefited the concentration of wealth. And I think you similarly see that today. So, I, you know, and I also want to kind of come back to this issue of cities in the context of this question, because, you know, on the one hand, there is a lot of authority that cities have, um, but 
it's hard to see how we solve some of the biggest challenges that we face you know for example you know around the market power of a company like amazon from a city level so I, i'm curious how you're thinking on kind of levels of government has changed and and how you reflect on that in ilsr's work yes it's a good question and of course your your work on on antitrust is i think some of the most informed work primarily because you've been working uh, with independent businesses that are hurt uh, you know most people when they talk about you know you know amazon or facebook or the like they're talking about privacy issues and those are important issues um, but you know your your take on it is that they're they're hurting in fact the the retail sector the independently owned business sector and that's a sector which if if mobilized you know can help change the the zeitgeist and can help change the context within which policy making is done i i agree that you know i mean municipalities actually can deal with big box retail but that's different from dealing with amazon which is much more insidious uh, states do have antitrust laws uh, and they they can in fact make inroads uh, into dealing with the with these issues but one thing that you can do at the at the local level and i think that's true about all the issues of the day is to is to educate people is to have a debate with people is to you know the, the thing about local politics as opposed to national politics that local politics is retail uh, and it and it you know you go door to door i mean it doesn't cost that much money to either run for office or to you know have a campaign if you will it uh, doesn't mean it's going to be successful, but it, you know it doesn't. But you don't have to raise you know a hundred million dollars to buy you know you know ads on on national networks. Um, so it you know it it enables things. That doesn't mean that it's that it's going to be you know easy at all. Uh, and you know as I said, internet is 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 uh, is potentially decentralizing. It was set up to be decentralizing. <laughs> it was set up to operate after a nuclear war. Um, but at the same time, it is centralizing in its control of information. Uh, and uh, and what we see there is you know not only the Facebooks and the you know and the uh, you know and the Amazons, but you know but China. Uh, for example, uh, you know a, a you know authoritarian government that it's becoming uh, increasingly a totalitarian government uh, because of the ability of face recognition, because of the ability of tapping into social media, uh, that is you know collecting information on every individual you know citizen, uh, and so you know those are the types of things that one you know has to deal with, um, and I and I think that dealing with that is probably going to be the the hardest issue. Uh, that uh, you know that that we've had you know to date, but once again, there are things that can be done you know at the at the local level to show people the value of privacy uh, and the the value of an ecosystem which is an ecosystem which is not a, a monopolistic uh, system uh, and uh, a monoculture, if you will, uh, and and so that's where I see the role uh, being uh, being for cities. You have uh, in the in the health sector, which I know Amazon has just gotten into, ACA, the the, the Obama Care program, uh, had a provision in it where after ten years, states could ask for innovation waivers, uh, and it's been ten years. And the the idea was that, by many people anyway, was that the innovation waivers would enable. Uh, a single payer or a public op option health system, uh, and that the federal government would allow funds to be used to make that happen. Oh well, unfortunately, what happened was Donald Trump, and so you now have a federal government that will deny 
uh, any waiver that enables a public option, that is, enables the public to have control or any more control uh, over the health system, while at the same time they will approve waivers that require uh, work requirements for Medicaid, you know, and the like. Um, so, you know, there is an, 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 a never-ending dance or battle, if you will, or exchange between higher levels of government and lower levels of government. But I, I do think that the issue of subsidiarity, which, which you know, we've been promoting, which is, you know, allow the local government to do uh, what it does uh, if, if it's not hurting, uh, you know, anyone, you know, broadly, uh, and the federal government and state government can intervene to protect minority rights uh, within, those, uh, within those cities, but otherwise should stay out of the way. I think that that educational campaign uh, is extremely important because that's what will provide fertile ground for the kinds of sort of antitrust, uh, pro-privacy uh, legislation that I that I think you're that you're working on, and I think many people are working on. I I think that dynamic is really important. That there's this idea, you know, that I, I think we see in a lot of our work, and and really in in a lot of ways throughout American history, the the importance of local authority is partly about. Uh, us becoming citizens, like being able to direct our own fa- own affairs, and it makes us better citizens when we engage with higher levels of government too. It's a challenging dynamic, like with the Walmart issue, for example. I'm really very aware that we didn't win. You know, Walmart captures one out of every four dollars that Americans spend on groceries, and although there were lots of communities that fought Walmart. And some of them succeeded in keeping it out. That pace of its expansion was really able to overwhelm the power of local zoning laws. Now, at the same time, I also think that people having experienced that and having engaged in wrestling with big companies coming into the community and and, and undermining their their well-being – at least potentially creates a group of, of citizens who can become effective advocates for things like reviving antitrust policy, you know, things that could actually, you know, structurally shift Walmart's power um, and kind of open up the way for a, a true reinvigoration of local economies. So I think there's, you know, I think part of what something that we've learned as an organization is what is the dynamic between those two things. Um, and in a way, working at the national level only, I don't think achieves something, but I also think in the absence of, of working, uh, I also think working at the local level leaves something behind too. Oh, I th- that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, the, I mean, the local level has no constitutional authority. I mean, the Constitution doesn't mention cities, and the Supreme Court has been very clear about that, that cities are mere c- mere creatures of the state, uh, as one famous decision said. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and so um, in, in some states, I mean, for example, New York State, New York City, I mean, New York City, 9 million people, uh, has to actually ask permission for from Albany for just about anything uh, that it does, which is astounding. Uh, and Boston has to do the same thing uh, for, uh, for the state of Massachusetts. There are other places that give cities more authority than that, but but states, you know, are places where there is considerable authority, uh, and once again, uh, in terms of the changed context between 1974 and 2019, uh, is that you know when we started, the the idea, I mean, the the, the slogan "states' rights" uh, was a racial slogan. I mean, it was a slogan that said that the you know states should have the right to deny people the right to vote. 
uh, and discriminate against people. That's what states' rights meant. Uh, and I think that now, you know, that slogan is probably still, uh, still a pejorative because of its legacy. But the idea that the state should have more authority to exercise for the common good uh, is one that is, you know, that is, I think, increasingly uh, discussed uh, and increasingly uh, put into practice, uh, whether it's minimum wage or required uh, parental leave uh, or what have you. So the, the, if you will, the progressive or the liberal or the, you know, the community that has previously very much opposed states' uh, authority, exercise of authority, because it's been discriminatory, you know, are now, you know, looking to the states to provide the authority that cities don't have to deal with the larger issues. David, you mentioned earlier how a lot of the work that we've done has been really visionary about how um, ideas have been ahead of our time, and now we have the technology to make some of them happen, particularly in the energy field with new solar and storage technologies. Um, Getting back to this vision, what would the world look like if one day we achieved ILSR's mission and we decided okay, everyone, pack up, we're going home, we're closing our doors, we're done. Um, what does that world look like, and what will we have accomplished? Well, I'm, I'm not usually one for what the future world will, will, will look like. Um, I, I, will, I will confess, one can be a visionary, but that's too much of a vision for me. But what I can, what I can say is that I would see a world evolving into a confederation of cities and regions, uh, rather than a world populated by nation states, uh, I mean, after all, you know what you know. What's a nation state? Uh, I mean, a nation state is is a territory that uh, that claimed authority over uh, tribes and over peoples uh, within those territories, and and often the peoples themselves would overlap territories, uh, like the Kurds in the Middle East, and so it, you know, forever having to deal you know, having to deal with that. But I, I think that you know the idea of a confederation uh, really does make se- sense. You know, Switzerland is a confederation. Uh, that's what they call themselves a confederation. Uh, in in Spain, you know, right now there is a you know there are secessionist movements. Uh, Catalonia is one. The Basque Province is another, and so forth. There are, there are secessionist movements at the regional level. But more recently, there are groups that have gained power in cities, larger cities like Barcelona or Madrid, uh, and they are talking about the need to have confederations of cities uh, within Spain and not to essentially talk about a region uncoupling from a nation state. Uh, and that would allow for you know, a, 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 a more democratic uh, structure and also a more cooperative structure. And one of the good things about modern technologies is that you, you can, in fact, have you know, discussions you know, between cities uh, that are stored. Uh, and you can also have a competition between cities uh, that is not the same as a competition you know, in the private sector. I think, for example, the, you know, the competition of sports teams uh, from you know, city to city is a, a much more welcome competition than the kind of things that, uh, in terms of the dog-eat-dog, uh, of the uh, you know of the marketplace, so a confederation would you know be the structure uh, of the future. I would also see that that people would be capable of surviving if there were a cutoff of some sort of basic source 
for at least a certain period of time. Uh, there was a, a biologist whose name I forget, but he was talking about uh, that self-reliance is not self-sufficiency, but is the, it is the potential for self-sufficiency, short-term self-sufficiency in certain situations. Uh, and so, you know, that in terms of resiliency in the face of a hurricane or a tornado or a flood, uh, or, you know, a, 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 a larger corporation deciding that they don't like what you're doing. Uh, and so, you know, that would also be something that would be built into the future. But I, I don't envision a future where there'll be no strife and where everybody will love one another and, you know, things will be at peace and the environment will be protected completely. And, you know, so I, I'm not Pollyannish about that. Uh, and the Institute, you know, works often at the at the nitty-gritty levels, at the day-to-day -day levels. Uh, and, and when we look out, we often look out to 10 years um, because, you know, for us, that's, you know, if you can achieve something significant, you know, in, in 10 years, you know, the rest in some ways uh, takes care of itself. If you were talking about 50 years, uh, your kids aren't going to be around or they'll be so old that they won't be around to see what happens in 50 years, whether it was a success or a failure. I know you gave a little disclaimer, David, in saying that you weren't a visionary, but that sounds like a great vision to me. I really like that vision, um, and it sounds like we've got a lot more work to do, folks. That's right. David, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, um, and to I, I feel like every time I learn a little bit more of ILSR's history, so it's great. So thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so you know thrilled that you're the, the head of the Institute and that the, the staff you know today is is extraordinarily capable. If I if I knew what was going to happen in 2019 institutionally uh, in 1974, I would have been one happy camper. So thank you so much. So you don't regret it at all? I do not regret it for <laughs> one second. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Uh, as a reminder, we'd love to get your feedback on this show. So send us an email at podcast at ILSR.org or you can tweet at us at ILSR. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, this show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez, Hiba Murray, and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Mm -hmm.